Good morning. To begin, I want to thank my dear friend, Pastor Schroeder, uh, and Kevin and the worship team for the invitation to speak this morning. Pastor Schroeder, as you know, is a tall man. Uh, I'm certain that your congregation has made many wise decisions over the years, not the least of which was to let us buy your building at 50th in the Parkway and then continue to host us for our high holy day services in the sanctuary. But your moral vision to have Pastor Schroeder lead this holy community was undeniably your best. He will, he will no doubt demure, but as you know, he is widely respected in our community and is universally beloved by clergy of all faiths. I used to wonder if it was his height that gave him such great vision. <laughs> After eight years of being his friend and his colleague, I've come to realize that it's the boundless horizon of his heart that blesses us all. So thank you. I wanna thank you all for the blessing of being here today. I love being in this space, a universalist church that hosts a synagogue on the High Holy Days and has a predominantly Somali Muslim preschool that you are uh, welcoming into your home. Whereas other people are building walls or trying to, you are busting them open so that we see each other's humanity. Thank you. The question I was presented with this morning, meeting the moment. How are we to meet this moment of history? What spiritual practices are we employing to meet the challenges and opportunities of this moment? What is the moment we're in and how are we called to engage as people of faith? Being the good rabbi that I am, I had to, of course, question the questions. <laughs> how do we define a moment? I started in a long email to Justin and Kevin. Why is this moment different from all other moments? What is the unique responsibility of faithful people in this particular moment? And on and on and on. And I didn't send the email because I realized that they had already asked me their question and that if I asked them to interpret it, I was asking them to do my work. So if the sermon is good today, it's because they asked a really good question. And if it's bad, it's because I didn't send the email. <laughs> the question as I see it, in the words of Lin-Manuel Mirandas Hamilton, is the power of the moment. Scratch that. He sings, this is not a moment, it's the movement. So the very question at its core is not whether this is not only a moment we are meeting, is this a movement we are building? By 9 p.m. on Tuesday, November 8th of 2016, I knew the outcome of the election. Our young daughters, who are now 10 and 13, spent the night on the floor of our bedroom. They were haunted and terrified. My husband looked shocked, and he is not someone being married to me who is shocked very often. It is possible I am projecting. I was the one who was in shock. We went about our Wednesday at school and work per usual. But when the girls got home from school that night, our youngest, Liat, asked to use one of our phones. We don't have a landline. Could we please give her Phil the handyman's number, she asked. Why do you want Phil's number, sweetheart? Because I have to call him. 
You see, I need him to build a safe room in our basement for Najima and her family. You know, like they did for Anne Frank. We have to hide her and her family when Trump comes to get all the Muslims. There is no playbook, no parenting guide, no adequate blog post to advise you how to answer your Jewish daughter when her first thought after the election of a pharaoh is how to protect her Muslim best friend from the newly elected president of the United States. Amidst some tears and abundant reassurance that I wasn't sure was actually authentic, that we would fight like hell against any Muslim ban, and the minute the administration even dared suggesting registering them, I would be the first one in line, because we've seen this before. What became clear to me was this moment needed movement, that we Jews have a nearly 4,000-year-old tradition to guide us, that we have faced pharaohs and despots and evil rulers before, and still we are here to tell about it. Why? because our values are better. Our vision is more compassionate. Our commitment to justice and freedom and human dignity more relentless, more enduring, and more eternal. And that is true, I believe, for all people of faith and of conscience. In the pages of the Talmud, the sacred Jewish text written on scraps of parchment whispered into the ears of battered and bruised Israelites in forests and caves and desert tents in the centuries following the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, there is an exquisite story of the venerable Rabbi Akiva. When Akiva and his students were traveling by sea, they came upon a devastating storm. I actually wrote this before today, so I just, you know. <laughs> I feel like I should get some cosmic credit. Okay. Um, the winds blew and the waters raged and the tiny wooden ship simply wasn't strong enough against the powerful storm and it shattered into pieces. Three days passed. When people discovered Akiva and his students alive on the shore of the sea, they were stunned. Rabbi Akiva, they asked, how on earth did you all survive such a ferocious storm? Rabbi Akiva's lips and throat were parched, so he answered softly. When the storm hit and the sky thunder and the skis raged and our ship broke apart, I grabbed onto a piece of wood with one hand and to my student in the other. We faced each wave before us. We never let go. We never gave up our focus of reaching the shore. First come the tears then the crying out, then comes the reaching out. Then someday we reach the shore, and then we change it all. What kept me going in those painful days following November 8th were the words and the movement of my Jewish sages, their unflappable hope, their commitment to redemption, their virtuous voices reminding us that we have seen this before their expansive vision of how to move the world from where it is to where it must be, overflowing with love and compassion and human decency. In this week's Torah portion, the weekly cycle of our Torah reading, the Jewish people read a story about the exodus from Egypt. But it isn't in the book of Exodus, it's actually located in the book of Numbers. We mostly go in order each Sabbath, except when we don't. 
The story, and that's another class and I'll be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. The story centers not upon leaving, but upon entering. Moses sends 12 scouts into the land of Israel, literally to scout it out before the Israelite people will enter. 10 of the scouts return to camp and they are terrified. Those people are giants. We look like grasshoppers. They are crying and wailing and gnashing their teeth and they plead with Moses, please don't make us go. They will literally eat us alive. But two of the scouts, Joshua and Caleb, maybe some of you know the story, right? They have a different perspective. They have faith somehow. They urge the people forward. This is a land flowing with milk and honey, they proclaim. Sometimes, I know I, and I imagine you might too, feel small. Sometimes the forces of injustice and indignity make us feel like grasshoppers facing giants. That's the insidious nature of tyranny and bullies. That's how fear works. It makes us feel worthless and powerless. The greatest act of spiritual defiance we can engage in today is to believe our own worth. That we can enter new places even if we see ourselves as grasshoppers, even if we get on the wrong bus because moral giants always triumph. We meet the moment with the movement of integrity, compassion, and courage. In the moments since the election, we have, faced, we have been faced with life and death choices. Do we face the moment like the 10 scouts who were terrified and immobilized, or do we face the moment like Joshua and Caleb, still scared, humble, but recognizing that the obstacles ahead of us and seeing potential at the same time. Today is the time to enter a new era like Joshua and Caleb, a season of powerful moral resistance and the rebirth of a patriotism centered on the lived experience of all of us. There has been a coalescing that I have never seen before in my life. Not always <laughs> very elegant, often pretty entangled, and messy and complicated, of people who have been told, especially in the last year, to see ourselves as grasshoppers, and people who nevertheless persist. Muslims and women of color, indigenous people, folks with disabilities, men, GLBTQ folks, scientists, Introverts, my favorite sign from one of the protests. Did you see this? It was all over social media. It must be bad if the introverts are showing up. <laughs> and as an introvert myself, I deeply empathize. It's people who are young and old, Democrat, Republican, Green Party, independent alike, coming together to offer a vision for a future flowing with milk and honey, crying out that we are, in fact, indivisible together. The Exodus, the Torah, was a theological revolution because the Torah is centered on a radical idea. And I want you to think about this for a moment because I don't think we often do, and I know it strikes me as remarkable. The Torah is centered on the idea that God sides with the powerless slaves over the powerful Pharaoh. 
That was a radical revolutionary moment in ancient times that ran counter to every aspect of reality. This was the moment when enslaved people cried out and God heard them. They met that moment with an expansive theological revolution and a march to freedom. It was inconceivable that a motley band of former slaves would confront a God on earth, that they would challenge him, let alone that they would thrive and continue to offer a vision of hope for the universe. Like so many generations ago, I would argue it is once again time for a new theological revolution, a new moral revival. And I believe that there is no better group to meet this movement, to birth this moral revival and lead this theological revolution than people of faith. And I wrote this even before, even before Dr. William Barber appeared on the front page of the New York Times this morning. So I can prove it. I have a little print stamp that says I printed it yesterday. Okay. I love when those things all come together, right? Now you're all going to rush home and read the New York Times. So today I rise with my Muslim and my Unitarian and my Christian and my Catholic and Baha'i and Hindi and native and pagan and Wiccan and atheist and every decent compassion person of faith and doubt as we meet this moment with humility and grace and the fierce resolve that our job is to center love for each other and the planet as the cornerstone of our collective politics and dignity must always be the center of our social policy. If it doesn't pass the dignity test, it shouldn't pass at all. To do that, we must remember our history and focus our vision and our mission on our sacred purpose in the world. I wrote this a few months back and it got me into some trouble, so I'm hoping that if you're gonna throw things, just you got a nice new setup here, so don't do it now. <laughs> Every synagogue and mosque and church must call ourselves to compassionate activism, to stand up for the poor, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the sick, the immigrant, the Muslim, the gays, the trans, the people of color, the elderly, and those with disabilities. I say this with a great deal of shame, but far too many of our houses of worship have become stale and broken, attached to dogma rather than faith, serving those in power rather than speaking up with the powerless. Congregations who aren't here to wake us up to the suffering around us and gather us to do something about it need to do some serious spiritual reflection and ask why on earth they exist. If our belief in the divine doesn't demand that we live the commandments of love, compassion, and generosity, and a robust commitment to healing our planet, if our faith is only focused inward on the self, it is simply narcissism. And folks, we have got enough of that right now. <laughs> I love the cultural differences, like our folks never clap, and so it's so great, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> we're working on it, we're working on it. The time has come for authentic people of faith to rise up and resist the blaspheming and the commodification of our religious traditions. We must meet this moment with fierce pride in our history. Jesus hung with the prostitutes in the hood. 
Moses led a motley band of undocumented former slaves, and Muhammad <laughs> proclaimed that our attachment to worldly possessions would destroy our ability to see God in the world. It is time for a theological revolution in America, and that if you are going to call yourself a person of faith, whether you be Christian, Muslim, Jewish, none of the above, all of the above, you better act like it. A theological revolution where we wake up to the suffering around us and strive together like the way you and your pastors have been doing here. To find ways to build a community and a social policy of human dignity and mutual respect where we see and we understand that the same folks on the alt-right, and by the way, just as a side note, come on, y'all, they are not alt-right, they're Nazis, okay? Who are stoking the flames of anti-Semitism and denying the Holocaust are the same people trying to ban Muslims from our country, criminalize women's health care, deny global climate change. I think they're trying to argue that the world is flat. They are the ones who are assaulting the First Amendment, beating up reporters, even when they're elected to Congress, um, and standing for all of the things that America is not supposed to be about. It is time for a theological revolution where if we are people of faith, we proclaim absolutely and without reservation that racism and sexism and the worship of guns are blasphemy. It is time, it is time for a theological revolution where we are willing, and this is really hard for me, so I'm saying this for you to be my witnesses, really hard so that we listen to people who disagree with us and whom we disagree with because we hold their humanity and our collective future in our hearts. And that because being a person of faith means that hope is a commitment we make to ourselves and to our children. And that it's time for a theological revolution that actually brings to life the golden rule. Do nothing hateful to another human being precisely because we are our sisters and our brothers keepers. It is time for a theological revolution that says if and when we invoke the name of the eternal, we better be prepared to defend all of God's creatures and all of God's creation with every fiber of our bodies and our souls, especially those of God's creation who drive us utterly bananas. Together we must meet this moment because on January 20th, we inaugurated a president who traffics in hatred and colludes with white supremacists and puts them a doorway away from the Oval Office. To be people of faith means we join together and proclaim that we will not stand idly by while you make our neighbors and our planet bleed with the stench of xenophobia and racism and homophobia and sexism. Elie Wiesel of Blessed Memory taught that we might not be able to stop all injustice, but we will all be damned if we don't try every chance we have. How do we meet this mo moment as a movement of people of faith? With resistance, with resilience, and with the work of repair. In Hebrew, we call it tikkun, repair work. Number one, resistance. 
We may not be able to change every law. We may not have the legislatures on our side. But every single person in this congregation and in my own congregation today can disrupt and interrupt cruelty every time we witness it. You do not need a PhD in human relations to let no racist joke go finished, no sexist commentary to go unchallenged, no locker room talk to be spoken in our presence, no rejection of people who look or pray or believe differently. That's what chutzpah looks like, folks. It means defending what is right, speaking out, and resisting the normalization of cruelty, even when it does not make us popular, especially when it doesn't make us popular. Our task as people of faith is not to be popular. It is to be prophetic. From resistance, we move to resilience, and that's why we are here. Folks, if you already belong to First Universalist Church or another spiritual community trying to live into our theological moral commitments, that's awesome. And if you are not yet a member, what on earth are you waiting for? <laughs> Seriously, the only way we are going to get through this moral swampland, which has not only not been drained, but re-polluted and filled up each and every day since January 20th, the only way we're going to make it through that moral cesspool is by holding on and joining one another fiercely. And that means all of us supporting the organizations who provide moral leadership in this time of moral crisis. We are powerful together. You should be damn proud that you've raised $5 million to renovate your building and your facility, and y'all should keep going because the world needs first you, okay? And third, repair. We gotta show up, and we gotta keep showing up, being present and stretching spiritually. The truth is, while I have been much in the public eye for the last several years, I am a deeply shy introvert, and I don't like the attention or being with groups of people at the legislature or protests or rallies at all. It is each and every moment, to use a term coined by my 10-year-old, oogie. It's ironic to have a preacher who's an introvert and it really makes for some good time on the couch. Um, but here's the deal. The world needs us to be present. Who are we not to show up? It is hard, not just for the socially awkward among us. It is going to be raining and hot all summer long. And I just like to say it's Minnesota folks, weather happens. We are tired. I remember seeing a sign at the Women's March that said, we're still fighting this you know what? Yes, we are still fighting it and it's exhausting. And we still need to show up to rallies and to protests, to the halls of the state and federal capital, to Congress, to City Hall, and not just show up, but to show up wearing our faith on our sleeves or our necks or our heads. We show up as people of faith because we believe in human dignity and that our public leaders, our elected officials, are servants of the public, not the other way around. Let me say that again. They are servants of the public, and it is the public who holds them to moral account. Finally, how do we meet this moment of collective pain and fear? We keep 
going. Nine years ago, then-Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton spoke about a famous New Yorker named Hillary Tubman. Tubman, as you know, guided more than 300 slaves on the Underground Railroad from the southern slave states to the free states in the north. And on that path to freedom, Harriet Tubman had one piece of advice. When you hear the dogs, keep going. If you see the torches in the woods coming after you, keep going. If they're shouting after you, keep going. Don't ever stop. Keep going. If you want a taste of freedom, of human dignity, of justice, of the world looking like it does at first you, where everyone is treated like a full human being and seen and loved and respected, keep going. For every one of us who has ever felt like a grasshopper, keep going because history will one day see us as moral giants. Keep going, folks. <laughs>